BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to our program. It is our uh, progressive national town hall meeting here with Congressman Ro Khanna. Congressman Khanna represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and did some real ass kicking on <laughs> Congress this week. And I'll just leave it at that. Congressman Khanna, welcome back. I don't know if you'd like to tell us the story of what happened, I believe it was the Oversight Committee, the House Oversight Committee that you're on, or anything else you'd like to just you know lay out for us real quickly here before we start picking up phone calls? Well, General Miller was testifying in front of our oversight committee, and he was, of course, the acting secretary of defense during January 6th. Usually I don't confront people as boldly and directly in him, as you know, have a more uh, civil decorum. But I just could not take his total lack of self-awareness, total lack of accountability. I mean, he was there saying he did everything perfectly. He had no sense of anything having gone wrong despite hours of total inaction while the Capitol was under siege. And so I asked him, does he regret anything? Is he willing to apologize? And he was unable to to do that, but then also was unable to recite some basic facts about what happened. Just highlighted the arrogance of power. It seems to me that looking at the timeline of this, that the Guard didn't begin to be mobilized toward the Capitol until after the national news organizations reported that the ballots were safe, Nancy Pelosi was safe, and Mike Pence was safe. That that was the point at which the coup had collapsed, had failed. The attempted overthrow of our government had failed. And that was the point at which it seemed, I mean, this is just you know, what it looks like to me. And that was the point at which the powers that be within the Trump administration, whether it was the sec- acting secretary of defense or whether it was the acting secretary, you know, secretary of the Pentagon, you know, what, whichever group it may be, that that was the point at which they decided that they would go to the aid of the, of the Capitol Police. Do you think that I'm wrong in that perception? And if I'm not wrong, why is that explicit perception not being shared or not being questioned in those terms? Well, I think, Tom, you're, you're right to raise questions about what, the timing. And certainly it had to do with the television broadcast. I mean, you have hours go by from about 1.30 when the leaders are frantically calling the White House saying we need help. And that's not just Pelosi and Schumer, but you have Republican leaders calling. And you don't get the guard going in until 5 p.m., I mean, almost four hours. So, you know, we need answers on why that happened. And there are a number of theories but no one has provided a compelling answer of why. It would be good to know. Okay, anything else you wanted to flag or be be sure everybody knows about before we start picking up phone calls here, or should we just jump to our calls? What we're working on is trying to get infrastructure and and as well as the president's uh, family plan through. And I would just say that, you know, obviously we need construction jobs, but if you look at the women who have been out of the workforce, and mostly moms, uh, probably the single biggest thing we could actually do at this point to help with that is have childcare. I mean, it's the biggest economic need, mm. just if you look at the numbers of what, what's going to return people to the workforce. So people are not, you know, Republicans are telling us that people are not coming back into the workforce because they're getting too much money on unemployment. You're suggesting that uh, one of the major factors instead is that they can't get childcare. 
Well, I mean, that's what the numbers show. I mean, there's, men are coming back to the workforce. Women aren't. It's not like somehow uh, men are getting less money than women. So, I mean, if their theory held up in any way, there wouldn't be this gender gap. But what we're seeing is men are coming back, women aren't, and it's because women are looking after the kids. And I think there is sexism rooted in how we think of economic response. I mean, obviously, we need construction jobs, and that's those jobs tend to be more male. Uh, but the fact that we're not talking equally about needs of women in the workforce, when that's where the biggest vulnerability is, I think just shows us still a an underlying sexism to uh, economic policy. Yeah, I think you've nailed it. Okay, let's pick up some phone calls here. Jeff in San Francisco, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hey, Congressman. I was just concerned about, you know, we don't have enough political power with the DNC because we don't, I think if we had unions would get stronger, if we can coincide, you know, because I mean, it basically takes money to buy and, and get things done in the Congress and uh, with political contributions, if we could strengthen unions and coincide that with the Green New Deal and we could make more recycling jobs and have, have a union besides that, how is that coinciding with the Green New Deal as far as working with unions and the welders and all, all the, the sheet metal? Because there's going to be a lot of jobs there that's going to be opening up. Is that a, a big consideration, working with the unions as well? Absolutely, Jeff. And you raise a very important point, and that is that we need to strengthen unions to counter corporate power. For the longest time, there was this narrative that the reason wages have been depressed is because of technology or globalization. And now the economists, there's a pretty big consensus that the reason they've been depressed is because of the loss of union power. I mean, workers have lost bargaining power. And one of the things we have to do with the Green New Deal is ensure that those new jobs are good paying jobs. And the only way we will do that is if those are, in most cases, unionized jobs. Charles in Miami, Florida, you're on the Earth, Congressman Connor. Good afternoon, Tom and Congressman Connor. The reason why I'm calling in is because my thing is this. We should not capitulate on anything. We should not try to appease these Republicans. If you have a $2 trillion bill for infrastructure, we must do that. We must also increase the minimum wage. And I just think it's going to be different now because this would be the New Deal 3.0. And I just think that the New Deal was the 2.0 after Reconstruction. But we need to include minorities in the system, get them to work in that, I think, was, will generate so much tax dollars. It'll be more than what we generated during the New Deal. And I would also ask if you can um, set up a bill where we can have a, a voting holiday and include that into the, the new bill that we're trying to do with infrastructure. Because I think with a voting holiday, first, it would show that America is back. We are the beacon for free men and free will. It would also give um, Americans a holiday, working people that can't afford a holiday. If we can start that holiday on Friday and end it on Super Tuesday, you know, it'll be like also making people that's minorities like myself feel like we're included in the society as well because our voice would then matter. And as far as these lies, all these voting fraud and stuff like this, it'll give people enough time to see people lined up you know, with the prop ID and, the, you know, you can't question it. Charles, there's a lot there. Let's let's states. let the congressman respond, okay? Okay. But, okay. Charles, I, Thank you. I appreciate uh, your passion and, and perspective. Uh, first of all, I think uh, a voting holiday on Election Day is a terrific idea. It would make it easier for those in the working class to vote. I strongly support it. It ought to be part of the voting rights bill or some effort uh, this Congress. Secondly, I agree with you that we ought not to be constrained by Republicans who don't want to pass anything and certainly don't want the president to get a political win. We ought to talk about bottom-up economics. This is something Robert Reich has been talking about for 20 years, that the investments in infrastructure will fuel jobs, will have a multiplier effect, which will raise revenue, that that is actually the way to grow the economy, build revenue, uh, and ultimately deal with deficits. The not supply-side economics, but bottom-up economics, I completely agree with you that we ought not to be constrained by Republican proposals. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama, you are on the air with Congressman Connor. Hi, Tom. Hello, Representative. 
Um, I have been concerned about the poverty in this country and, of course, the lack of health care. And I think about the fact that uh, my generation, we have, my sisters and I, my fellow co-workers, we have a small retirement check to go with our Social Security. My parents worked for companies that provided with retirement checks. Now today, because of, for the past 20, 30 years or longer, people have been regulated into being part-time, temporary, seasonal employees so that these multi-level, national, international corporations do not have to provide any benefits at all. We, they cannot afford health care for any, uh, any employee cannot just, you know, you can't work for enough hours to pay for health care. And so what we need to do is increase the contributions to Medicare and increase the con- contributions to Social Security. Because we right now, we have a large poverty problem. We have homelessness from one end of the country to the other. And if these people in another 10, 20, 30 years retire with nothing to fall back on, what kind of a poverty situation will the United States face? We need to have these foreign investment groups, foreign corporations, international corporations contributing double or even triple into Medicare so that we can have Medicare for all and triple into Social Security so that when the people who are working 40 and 60 and 80 hours a week now, when they retire, they will have something to live off of. The people across the street from me want to buy the house. They're renting it, but it belongs to a guy from China. Buildings downtown belong to Japan and other countries. As our country is sold out from under us, our own citizens are not going to have the money or the resources to buy a home and keep it. We're going to wind up with homeless and no way to take care of them, sir. Can you do something about this? Well, I appreciate all the issues you raise, and you you raise a lot of good points. First, we need Medicare for all, so everyone has health care. We can't be reliant, as you put it, on multinational corporations. Second, we need stronger unions, so we have higher wages in this country and aren't dependent on the corporate powers. Third, we absolutely need to increase Social Security because more people are reliant on that. And we need to have appropriate regulations on these corporations so that they have to make good on the promises to workers that they make and representation of workers and employees on corporate boards. So it's a longer conversation, but you're right that the power has shifted to these multinational corporations, and we need to shift it back to the American workers and American employees. Joe in Cupertino, you always get through when he's on it. You must have auto, you know, speed dial on your phone, Joe. Uh, you are on the air with your congressman. Tom, thank you so much. I wear my mask religiously. I'm going to continue to do that, even though I do have kids and they're growing up. So we have to kind of go through this slowly. But, uh, Congressman, I love everything that you do, and I really appreciate your time. I wanted to speak today because it's American Jewish Heritage Month, along with a lot of other things. But I never thought it was a good idea to allow the relocation of the Jewish capital to Jerusalem. I think to kind of instigate the whole thing. I mean, what happened to the two-state solution? I don't understand. But I think maybe withholding some foreign aid from the Israeli government for some time to get them to realize that, you know, it's very much like the situation on our southern border, these indigenous people. And we keep doing things that don't really make a lot of sense. They don't get a right to vote in Israel if you're a Palestinian. Just like we here in America don't allow people to vote. Why do we continue to support these? And I just wonder what your position was, because I know you're a man of peace and seem to have great insight. I wondered if you would uh, give me some thought on that and mention the prosecution of Trump. He's in New Jersey, so you don't have to worry about extradition. I'll take your answer off the air. Thank you, sir. Well, first of all, Joe, thank you for raising it. I mean, it's just awful what we hear in terms of the uh, the deaths of children, uh, the deaths of children, obviously Palestinian children, uh, but also Israeli children. And now you see the outbreak of potential civil war in Israel. And that's not my terms. That's uh, Israeli officials saying that this is the first time they're seeing the Arab population within Israel take to the streets. 
So if there is not a two-state solution, I think I was opposed to the move in Jerusalem. I still don't think that the capital should be Jerusalem. I think we ought to be in the new administration recognizing that it's back to, to Tel Aviv and move our embassy back. It's unnecessarily provocative, as we've seen. Uh, those things need to be part of a negotiation in terms of who controls what territory. And there ought not to be any displacement of Palestinians from their homes, and there ought not to be an excessive response in terms of going in to Muslim holy sites. That was one of the triggers for this, but Netanyahu's own politics. Now, obviously, there's no justification for Hamas putting all of the rockets into Israel either. And saying that is not giving Israel a pass. It's just saying that we shouldn't be for violence in in any case, and that ought to be condemned as well. But the root of this is that we have to recognize the occupation. We have to recognize the need for human rights and the need to work towards a two-state solution, which over the last four years has been made less and less possible. Do you think that the Biden administration is moving forward on this in, in the right way? Here, I, I think there is a lack of sufficient empathy. I mean, when I saw Ned, I forget his last name, the spokesperson, and he was unwilling to even acknowledge the deaths of Palestinian children. You can believe, and, and, and President Biden has always believed in Israel as an ally, but that doesn't mean that you can't recognize the humanity of Palestinians and speak out clearly that, yes, it's wrong for rockets on Israel, but it's also wrong for Palestinian children to be being killed. I, I, I don't think that that's a controversial statement. Yeah, the one that I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Proof of Conspiracy, How Trump's International Collusion is Threatening American Democracy by Seth Abramson. This is from the introduction. In late 2015, a geopolitical conspiracy emerges overseas whose key participants are the leaders of Russia, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt. These six men decide that Trump is the antidote to their ills. For Russia, U.S. sanctions. For Israel, the lack of Arab allies. For Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt, perceived threats emanating from Iran. The conspirators commit themselves to doing whatever is necessary to ensure that Donald Trump is elected. Trump's presidential campaign is aware of and benefits from this conspiracy both before and after the 2016 election. On March 19, 2018, British journalist David Hearst, the former chief foreign leader writer for The Guardian, publishes the most important report of his career. Hearst, at one time the Moscow bureau chief at The Guardian, is now editor-in-chief of his own publishing venture, a London-based Middle East watchdog called the Middle East Eye. In the spring of 2018, he reports the existence of a years-long continent-spanning conspiracy that will eventually envelop the President of the United States, the Red Sea Conspiracy. This book denominates the conspiracy Hearst uncovers as the Red Sea Conspiracy for the simple reason that it is hatched on a yacht in the middle of the Red Sea, a seawater inlet of the Indian Ocean bordered by, among other countries, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. One imagines that in as many years as a correspondent and commentator for the Scotsman, the Huffington Post, Al Jazeera, El Arabi, Al Jaid, TRT World, which is Turkish, Masar Al Agan, Egypt, and The Guardian, Hearst never thought he'd stumble on a story as far-reaching in its implications as the Red Sea Conspiracy. But he did, and what he found could change the course of history. 
This book chronicles the events around the globe that preceded and followed the fall 2015 origin of the conspiracy, with a special focus on how the conspiracy prompted Donald Trump and his aides, allies, and associates to covertly collude with six countries, both before and after the 2016 presidential election. Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, Bahrain, and Egypt. Events that began on the Red Sea in 2015 now influence President Trump's foreign policy toward all of these countries, toward other countries not involved in the conspiracy, such as Qatar and Iran, and more broadly toward Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. The story of the Red Sea conspiracy begins with a man named George Nader. As reported by Hearst in the Middle East Eye, toward the end of 2015, Nader, then an advisor to the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed al Nayan, known as MBZ, convened, with his patron's permission, a summit of some of the Middle East's most powerful leaders. Gathered on a boat in the Red Sea in the fall of 2015 were Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, Deputy Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who would shortly become the heir apparent to the throne of the Saudi Kingdom. MZB himself, by 2015 the de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates. Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, the President of Egypt. Prince Salman bin Hamad, the Crown Prince of Bahrain, and King Abdullah II of Jordan. Nader, the improbable maestro of these rulers' clandestine get-together, intended the plan he posed to the men to include the nation of Libya, but no representative from that nation attended the gathering. Of the leaders aboard the yacht, too, MBS and MBZ are already close. According to a New Yorker interview with Richard A. Clark, a counterterrorism advisor to Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush, MBS and MBZ, quote, talk on the phone all day to each other, end quote. The Red Sea meeting, although technically convened by Nader, is a means for MBZ to advance ambitions that he and MBS have designed together. The two Sunni Arab leaders' intention, Hearst records, is to remake the Middle East with the covert assistance of a highly placed American politician. They intend to do this by first renaming and reconstituting the membership of the six-member Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, which in 2015 comprises Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar, while reorienting, too, its regional ambitions and global alliances. The proposed GCC realignment would evict Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar from the Council and replace these three countries with Egypt, Jordan, and Libya, thereby eliminating the entity's historical association with the Persian Gulf and remaking it as, instead, an alliance constituting, quote, an elite regional group of six countries which would supplant the GCC and form the nucleus of a coalition of pro-U.S. and pro-Israeli states in the Middle East, end quote. According to two sources briefed on the 2015 Red Sea Summit, quote, Nader said this group of states could become a force in the region that the United States government could depend on to counter the influence of Turkey and Iran, end quote. Prior to 2015, Turkey and Saudi Arabia had intermittently enjoyed strong diplomatic ties. The book Proof of Conspiracy by Seth Abramson. Welcome back to our National Progressive Town Hall meeting with Congressman Ro Khanna. And uh, let's see here, Bill in Clifton, New Jersey, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Good afternoon. With 600,000 people having died, don't you think it's a good idea to erect a memorial or memorialize the dead in some way and maybe even have a day of reflectance? Bill, thank you for that sober thought, and, and I am completely with you. I mean, it's been horrific, and we've had vigils and candlelight demonstrations near Washington, a number from I've been to, but I think we have to do something permanent, not just to honor all of those Americans who lost their life, but to remind us uh, about the extraordinary toll that this took so that we don't have this ever happen again because of the incompetence of government policy and a letdown of the government. So I am completely uh, with you and would support that kind of an initiative. Well, let's try Holly in Washington, D.C. You are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hello. Thank you for your service, Rokana. Love you being in that Congressional Oversight Committee. So the question Thank I you, have Holly. Is, Yeah, the question I have is, it seems like the FBI and the DOJ are on a pretty robust investigation and 
and uh, delivering consequences for one six. And so what would the Congressional Commission on that offer that law enforcement wouldn't? It's a great question, Holly. I, I think it's for law enforcement, the Justice Department, the FBI, to figure out who was involved, were certain members of Congress involved, what were the organizations involved, and to bring charges and to hold accountable those people who were involved. But there are broader questions, like why did our National Guard not mobilize? Why was there a total lack of communication between the Secretary of Defense and the general in charge of the National Guard? What can we do to make sure that this type of situation never happens again? What do we do in a situation where you have a president who wants to try to overturn results? And those are not questions for law enforcement. Those are questions about legal policy. And I think the commission needs to have recommendations about what we need to do so we never see January 6th again from a policy perspective. Jose in Toledo, Ohio, you are on the air with Congressman Connor. Thank you for taking my call, Congressman. My question is about the January 6th edition. It seems like the people within the government that aided in this act of sedition are going to walk away scot-free, whereas if I do something... You bet they'll be knocking on my door. But these guys seem to be even now lying about that it even ever happened. How can we as citizens help you within the Congress bring these guys to what I would call justice? You need to, and you're right. That the I have confidence that the Justice Department FBI will go after and appropriately hold accountable those people who stormed in to the Capitol building. But what about all of the people at a higher level, the ones, the reports of members showing tours, the dereliction of duty on the in the administration where they knew what was going on and refused to act? I think that is why we need to have this commission and we have to have an investigation that gets to the people in the top and not just focus on the actual person who stormed the building. Congressman, just two quick questions apropos of that. Number one, have you found out if it's true or not that the video footage of the three days before January 6th in the Capitol has been deleted? I've read reports to that effect. It's no longer available, number one. And number two, do you know if the FBI is actually you know, doing the kind of behaving as if they are investigating members of Congress? Tom, I don't know the answer to both. The first one I can find out. The second one, all that we're told is that they are looking into everything, and that includes the actions of people on the Capitol Hill complex. I don't know specifically if they're members that they're looking into, but I have confidence at this point that the Justice Department and the FBI are taking it seriously and doing it comprehensively. And they would even do that if it becomes politically sensitive? I think so. I mean, I think that the president has set a good tone here, which is he doesn't want to intervene. Pat in San Diego, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thank you, Tom and Congressman Khanna. I'm very distressed with what's going on between Israel and the Palestinians, and I question the legality of any of our taxpayer money going to Israel. As you know, in the U.N., the entire world condemns Israel for its human rights abuses, which are daily and we continue to coddle them and to veto anything the U.N. does and to give them our taxpayer money. And it's clear to me they, don't, they shouldn't be getting any taxpayer money. What are the possibilities of stopping this and also stopping this defending Israel? It's like Trump saying good people on both sides. No, it's not. It's, not. it's a totally uneven fight. As you know, the Palestinians are a captive population. And it really uh, upsets me to see them being victimized for whatever Israel wants to do. As you know, Israel triggered this by, again, demolishing Palestinian homes and, again, stealing more land. So what are the Palestinians supposed to do? It's a totally un- Pat, uneven let's get fight. let's let Congressman Khanna answer. We're, we're running out of time here. Well, Pat, I appreciate your passion on it. I have supported the foreign aid to Israel, but I have been very clear that it ought to be restricted in compliance with the Leahy law and human rights. And if there is any of that aid going towards things like police going into the Muslim holy sites, that should not be allowed. Or if there's any aid going into home demolition, I led a letter with 64 other members saying none of our aid should be going to demolish the homes of Palestinians. So that has been my position. It's been for recognizing 
that they are an ally, but making sure that the Leahy law applies to any of our aid and, and that no country is exempt from it. Congressman, we just have 40 seconds here. It seems to me that we're seeing these mobs in the streets of right-wing Israelis, you know, going around beating up Arabs. I realize it's kind of the smallest part of all of this, but it almost looks to me like Netanyahu has kind of activated the Israeli version of Donald Trump activating the Proud Boys. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's right. I mean, look, I think uh, Netanyahu fears for his position. He's trying to hang on. And it, it seems to me, I mean, uh, this is an outside observer, that uh, there, he's doing things for political reasons and is, has instigated something. But it has really broken down. And I, I think they're now realizing how serious it is. It's one thing for Palestinians to be adversarial to Israel outside their borders. But if the 20% Arab population within Israel starts to become polarized and starts to take action, that's a recipe for a civil war. And that's You're the most serious to the threat Hartman to program. Israel. I absolutely agreed. And sorry about the music there. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. You are on the air with Congressman Rokana. Yeah, thank you, Tom, for taking my call. Thank you, Congressman. And uh, uh, by the way, I am in Santa Clara County. My question is regarding the Supreme Court in Michigan saying that people who are not registered to vote can no longer vote. If you cannot uh, vote, why should you pay taxes? We, for the most part, have taxation without representation in this country. And now if a sector of the population cannot vote, why should they pay taxes? And I take my answer off the air. I agree with you. It's the same argument with D.C., that uh, if you're paying taxes to our country, if you're working in our country, you ought to be able to participate in the decision-making of our country. That, that was the founding premise. And the assault on voting rights in every way around this country is uh, unconscionable. And that's why we need H.R. 1 to pass, which it has, and the Senate version to pass, uh, to address all of these issues. Marty in Evergreen Parks, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Khan. Hi, Congressman. Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Congressman, I recently uh, saw the HBO documentary um, Crime of the Century this week. And my takeaway where the Sacklers and, you know, Big Pharma were able to genetically modify the opium copy, grow them at mass in Tasmania, and then, you know, import them back here. And now we have a bunch of people dead because, you know, it was the only ax, you know, because it was the only opium product that people had access to. And my takeaway is that if we, if people had access to safe and recre- recreational drugs and we decriminalized it, that we probably would have saved a lot of lives in that epidemic. And uh, our current system is completely archaic, mean, racist, and it's outdated and it doesn't work. And I think that it's time that we <clears throat> reevaluate our current drug policies. And I want to get your thoughts on that. Marty, I do think we have to evaluate it. I mean, obviously, we have to legalize, in my view, marijuana, and then we ought to be looking at decriminalization of drugs that have medical use, and and in certain cases, legalizing drugs that have medical use. And you have to make sure that there are the regulations, because what you saw is just total manipulation by pharmaceutical companies to make profits and the over-prescription of these drugs that uh, without a disclosure of the of the side effects. So it really was a crisis precipitated uh, by pharmaceutical greed. Mike, in Minneapolis, you're on the air with Congressman Conant. Okay, caught me mid-bite. Um, there's a serious, <laughs> serious problem with catalytic converters being stolen and they get about $200 for the precious metals inside. They cost $1,200 to fix. And they're, I mean, they're ripping these off right and left. And there's a couple of problems here. One, of course, the person who loses the, the loss. And then there's, if somebody catches somebody doing it, somebody's going to get killed. And that could easily be either the car owner or maybe the perpetrator. And we could have more situations like young males getting killed because they're stealing these things. They're literally untraceable, and that's the issue that could be easily fixed. Can you suggest to the auto lobby that if they don't put serial numbers on these items, you'll write a bill? It's a thoughtful suggestion. I haven't heard it before, and if you write to my office, 
just go to our website and you suggest it. We'll look into it. I'll tell my staff to look into it. But certainly having a serial number on a part, uh, if it will help with the issue, I think that's a very reasonable thing to do on first glance. Congressman, thoughts on what we should be looking at, where we should be directing our activism, who we should be calling, what we should be doing between now and the next time we see you on this program? Well, I think that the focus has to be on making sure that the president's bold initiatives actually pass and that we don't get lulled into trying some smaller bipartisan deal. I mean, we have a rare opportunity to have transformative legislation when it comes to the climate and creating a strong standard for clean energy, for renewable energy, getting rid of tax subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. We have a strong opportunity to to rebuild a lot of our country, including broadband, and we have an opportunity to have universal child care and investments in families. We have to take advantage of that. And right now it's an open question whether the Progressive Caucus's view will prevail and we'll do these things or whether we're going to compromise and have a very small version. And and that's uh, the debate over the next few months. And that debate's happening mostly in the summer, right? Senate, but also the House. I mean, we have to get them a strong bill out of the House. And so the Progressive Caucus yeah. is up front and center. And they need our votes to pass something, too. There you go. Well, thank you so much for your service and for being on that uh, on that on that vice chair of that caucus and for being on the program today, Congressman Connor. Thank you. I always you. love it. Thank you, Tom. Great. Thank you very much. Great talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Medea Benjamin's new book, Kingdom of the Unjust Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. And this is from the introduction. Through the women-led peace organization Code Pink, which I co-founded with Jody Evans after the 9-11 attacks, I have spent much of the last decade standing up against U.S. military intervention in the Middle East and supporting local democracy activists. I traveled many times to the region, listening to human rights activists, marching with them in the streets, dodging tear gas and bullets, and getting beaten up and deported by government thugs. I have seen firsthand the deadly effects of U.S. foreign policies. The 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq destroyed the lives of millions, including many of my dear friends, and unleashed the sectarian hatred that later gave birth to the Islamic State. I recall a conversation with my Iraqi colleague Yanar Mohammed, daughter of a Shiite father and a Sunni mother, and founder of the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq. When I asked her what was the most notable legacy of the U.S. invasion of her country, He gave the chilling response, we, Sunnis and Shia, learned to hate each other. In another part of the Middle East, U.S. military support for Israel has wreaked havoc on the lives of Palestinians and aroused the ire of people throughout the region. Continuous U.S. military interventions, drone warfare in Yemen, to overthrowing Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, to funneling an endless stream of weapons into the region, have unleashed new levels of violence. But the United States is not the only nation whose massive footprint has been trampling on the lives of people in the Middle East. The other nation is Saudi Arabia, an oppressive monarchy that denies human rights to its own people and exports extremism around the world. It also happens to be the closest U.S. ally in the Arab world. During the 1980s and 1990s, I met intolerant and violent young men in Pakistan and Afghanistan who were trained to hate Westerners in Saudi schools. 
In 2001, I saw my own nation convulsed by an attack on September 11th that was perpetrated mostly by Saudis. Not hard to connect the dots behind the spread of the Saudi intolerant ideology of Wahhabism, the creation of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and the attacks in New York, Paris, Brussels, and San Bernardino. You can also connect the dots between Saudi Arabia and the failure of some of the historic uprisings associated with the Arab Spring, since the Saudi monarchy did not want calls for democracy to threaten its own grip on power. I was in Bahrain after Saudi tanks crushed the inspiring grassroots encampment in Pearl Square, where tens of thousands had gathered day after day to demand democracy. I will never forget the excitement of being in Tahrir Square during the Egyptian Revolution and watching a gasp uh, gasped as a military coup backed by the Saudis put some 40,000 activists behind bars. In Yemen, the Saudis took a direct military role in that nation's internal conflict with a ruthless bombing campaign. When I travel overseas, people often ask me why Saudi Arabia, a country that is so repressive internally and overseas, is such a close ally to the United States. Iranian friends want to know why the U.S. government is so outspoken about human rights violations in Iran, but silent about the worst abuses in the Saudi kingdom. Yemenis ask why my government supplies weapons to the very nation, Saudi Arabia, that bombed their schools and hospitals. Saudi women ask why the United States, which professes great democratic values, props up a regime that treats women as second-class citizens. The easy answer is oil, weapon sales, and other business interests. Oil has formed the basis for U.S.-Saudi ties. The kingdom has become the largest purchaser of American weapons in the world, and hundreds of billions of Saudi petrodollars help shore up the U.S. economy. But there's another reason, perhaps more critical than any of the others. The American people have not demanded an end to this dysfunctional, toxic relationship. Why? In part, because the American people know so little about it. Even American parts of a peace movement know virtually nothing about the kingdom. The Saudi press is muzzled, foreign journalists are strictly monitored, and only tourists visiting for religious purposes are allowed into the country. Add to that a Saudi lobby that lines the pockets of U.S. think tanks, such as the Middle East Institute, Ivy League universities such as Harvard and Yale, and influential institutions from the Clinton Foundation to the Carter Center. This checkbook diplomacy helps put a happy face on the abusive monarchy and silences its critics. We have a lot to uncover. This book is meant to be a primer, giving readers a basic understanding of how the kingdom holds on to power internally and tries to influence the outside world. It looks at the founding of the Saudi state, the treatment of dissidents, religious minorities, women and migrant workers, the spread of Wahhabism, the kingdom's relationship with the West and its role in the region, and what the future might hold. As we delve into the inner workings of this dystopian regime, don't mistake criticism of Saudi Arabia for Islamophobia. This book is not a critique of Islam, but a critique of three intertwining factors that have shaped the Saudi nation. The extremist interpretation of Sunni Islam, known as Wahhabism, the appropriation of the Saudi state by one family, and Western support for this dynasty. Criticizing Saudi Arabia should not be equated with support for Saudi's nemesis, Iran. The Iranian government is guilty of some of the same abuses as the Saudis. Kingdom of the Unjust. Matt, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Matt, it says you disagree with me here. About what? Hi, Tom. I'm a restaurant owner, and, you know, hiring people right now is extremely difficult. We're having a, a very hard time. If you go and look at every single restaurant, they've got a sign out front that says, now hiring. We had no, over 100 applications that, all over the that country. were submitted. We're able to hire eight people out of that 100. And a lot of them are telling us flat out that they're only applying because they have to. New Mexico just made it so that you have to actually look for a job now, at least two per week. In we order to qualify we for unemployment? In order to qualify for unemployment. Yes, sir. Right. And we had one guy that we were going to hire, and the minute we got him on the phone, he goes, yeah, I can't wait to get in there just so I can look at the young girl's butts. Now... Who would say that? Not a guy you want to hire. Really wanted to get hired. Well, exactly. Right. So we've we've had employees that were employed with us, 
and we called them back and they said well we used to work full-time we only want one shift a week and then they would call out or trade their shifts off every time so they're right. they're definitely playing the game there is an element of that that is doing that no, I don't, I don't disagree, Matt. And by the way, this the $300 a week additional unemployment, which you only qualify for if you're already getting unemployment, which you only qualify for if you've already jumped through all the hoops of the state and different states have different hoops and it, it's you know easier or harder in various states. But that's all scheduled to expire in September. Yeah. And now you've got 11 states that have said that they're going to expire it at the end of this month or at the end of the next month. And there have been a number of variables here that are causing dislocations in the labor market. One of them is the fact of those unemployment payments. People are not feeling the pressure to get back to work. I'll acknowledge that. That's a very temporary situation. Another is that a lot of people over the course of the last year got used to not, um, I was going to say not going out to restaurants every week, but you know, sort of not buying a lot of things that they don't really, quote, need and living a little more frugal lifestyle and have decided that, like the person who told you, hey, you know, going forward, I'm not going to work full time. I'll work part time because they've kind of downscaled their lives and discovered that, hey, this is this works for me. And then the third thing is that it's still not safe out there. I would think particularly if I was thinking about getting a restaurant job, Louise and I day before yesterday went to a restaurant for the first time since March of 2020. One of our favorite restaurants here in town, a little Mexican restaurant that hangs out over the uh, over the river and we were sitting at a table that was six feet away from anybody else we were outdoors and still the waiter treated us like we had the plague i mean he was very nice and he was a wonderful waiter and i tipped him really well and he wore a mask all the time but we were not wearing masks because we were eating and so he was very careful never to get within three or four feet of us because we represented a possible threat to him and so if i was looking for a job right now you know, walking into a restaurant job where you've got a lot of people who are not wearing masks and you have no idea if they've been vaccinated or if they're mask holes, it would give me pause, Matt. And I'm guessing that that's going to resolve itself as we hit herd immunity and as infections start to collapse and particularly as children start getting vaccinated. But doesn't it make sense that there are multiple variables here at work? Well, there certainly are. But to say that people aren't coming back to work because of unemployment. I mean, that is a fact. That's definitely happening. We're fortunate in New Mexico. We're one of the best states in the whole nation for our vaccination rates. And, you know, they've opened it up to everyone who wants to get it 16 years and older. So, mm-hmm. you know, things are yeah, definitely starting to loosen up here and our numbers are going down and, and things are looking very good. But, you know, we're, we're definitely getting from our, our people that we're trying to hire that, they're playing the game, you know, and they don't want yeah. to work. The, the example I gave of the two people who, you know, only wanted to come back one day a week, they flat out told us they were doing that so they could stay under the radar and still receive unemployment. Yeah, I get it. And, uh, you know, the one time in my life that I applied for unemployment was, uh, geez, it had to be like 1969 or 1970. And it was in Michigan and I had to go stand in line every other week, I think, to get my check. And I had to bring proof that I had I had to have three different uh, possible employers sign off. And I was actually looking for work at the time, by the way. I was only on unemployment for maybe a month, month and a half. But it was humiliating and it was difficult. And, you know, and, and I get it. The states do that. I wonder if the states didn't do that, if they simply said, OK, if you're not if you don't have a job, you know, we can tell if you don't have a job or you don't have a job because you're paying taxes. If you don't have a job, you know, you get the unemployment and you don't have to be calling Matt and pretending to apply for a job. Then the only calls you you wouldn't be getting 100 you know, applications from people where, you know, 92 of them were people who were just doing the dance to get their unemployment benefits. Then you'd have a better quality of people that you could choose from and and it would make your life easier wouldn't it i would hope so (laughs) yeah because we're we're shortening our days shortening our hours shortening our menus we've raised our wages two three dollars an hour across the board we think we're attractive but it's just tough out here finding employees Yeah. Well, I think that'll change. And I think it's going to correlate or overlap with 
a general feeling of it's safe now. And I think that, that it's safe now is a big deal. Matt, thanks for the call and thanks for enlightening me. Anne in Marietta, Ohio. Hey, Anne, let's try it again. What's up? <laughs> All right. Well, talking about vaccinations, I wanted to just let you know the New York Times magazine of this past Sunday, the whole magazine was devoted to the increase in the lifespan of everyone. And it was all about vaccinations. And the mm-hmm. big problem that people faced or the, the scientists faced, they came up with a vaccination, but people were afraid. The smallpox, for example, was not accepted until some wealthy aristocratic lady got the smallpox vaccination and then everyone jumped on the bandwagon. But it reduced the mortality rate down to 4% uh, from smallpox. And then it went on. Are you talking about like hundreds of years ago? Yeah. Well, all all these vaccinations, Mm -hmm. the big problem with all of them was people accepting it. And so um, people should look at this and say, well, look how our lifespan has increased because of these vaccinations. They do. They're good. And then last Mm -hmm. night on PBS, they had the same kind of program about vaccinations and how it changed the lifespan. I mean, from 45 to the 70s due to Mm -hmm. vaccinations. And it was a very good point they were making. And I think it should be more advertised that vaccinations are good. I mean, measles, smallpox, polio. These are all vaccinations. Why are people afraid of COVID-19? It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, people are afraid of it because it's a deadly disease, but uh, afraid of the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, They're afraid of it because they're getting lied to by people in the media, not necessarily the mainstream media, but, you know, in, in like on YouTube and Facebook and whatnot. Oh, I, They're getting I, lied I to heard by people that who, rant. Who, yeah. Tucker Carlson yeah. was awful. Just plain awful how he yeah. talked about it. Anyway, yeah. uh, I just wanted to say people need to look at other sources of information besides uh, news. Read something. I, I, I'm with you, Ann. I don't know if you caught the uh, conversation that Lawrence O'Donnell had with Joe Biden, but he asked Biden, you know, what are you going to do about all this vaccine hesitancy? And Biden kind of laughed and said, people are coming around. You know, it's it's not that they're, you know, I, there's going to be a small number of ideologues and crazies. Obviously, there always are. But mostly it's like people are, are waiting until they hear from their neighbor or their friend or their coworker or their aunt or uncle or, you know, brother or sister or brother-in-law yeah, or whatever yeah. from somebody that they know who says, yeah, I got the vaccine and now, hey, I can go out. Now I feel safe. Now, I, you know, and at that point people go, you know, the kind of the penny drops. People go, oh, yeah, okay, I, I should do yeah. that too. Yeah, well, I, I just think there was so much publicity about from PBS and the New York Times mm-hmm. talking about the efficacy of these vaccinations. And I guess the people who read those articles and listen to PBS or watch PBS already feel the same way. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, it does does require a certain intellect to be able to process information <laughs> you know, as opposed to just <laughs> blithering. Well, and thank well, you for thank the call. You. It's great to hear from okay. you. Thank you. And thank you for watching Free Speech TV. And welcome back, Chris in Glen Helen, Illinois. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to WCPT. Hey, Tom. Um, you had a restaurant owner that called pertaining about uh, having a hard time getting employees. I spent 30 years in restaurant, 20 years managing. Plain and simple. Servers, bartenders, they don't get paid anything per hour. I think we all know that already. They live on tips. You have less people going to restaurants right now. They are going to make a better living off of that minor unemployment check that they have right now. That's barely even a livable wage for these people. Also, retails, 
automotive and before you continue chris if i can just speak to your point because you're absolutely right and i knew that and i should have included that in my conversation with the restaurant owner who called which is that you know for example the experience that louise and i had over at this nearby restaurant to us they had half as many tables as they normally have so that they could comply with the state's spacing requirements which meant that the servers and and the restaurant was three quarters empty or two-thirds empty which meant that the servers were probably making you know 30 percent of the tips that they normally would make and that's the majority yep. of their income i over tipped i mean I, I gave the guy a 25 30 percent tip you know because i understood you know hey this is a tough situation for these guys and because i could afford to but most people don't over tip they'll tip you know 15 or 20 percent and so the servers are getting screwed so it's an even worse time to try to get a job as a server because you're not going to get paid as well back to you chris yeah, absolutely. And you're totally right about that. Not only that, credit card tips, those are automatically, what do you call taxed for servers and bartenders. Some restaurants right. don't even give you the cash for that. They give it to you on your paycheck. So now you're getting double taxed for that. I mean, it's just ridiculous for people to truly think that restaurant employees, cooks, even managers that are working 60 hours a week, they don't get paid anything. I started as a restaurant manager for $24,000 a year back in the mid-90s. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And that wound up, when I finally got out of that last year, before the pandemic, I was only making 60000 as a general manager. You know, you're supposed to get bonuses and benefits. But it's just, it, it's... This whole that people aren't working because they don't want to because they're, you know, living the dream on unemployment. I have a buddy who's a chef. He's making more on unemployment plus the 300 than he did as an executive chef on salary, meaning that restaurants really don't pay accordingly unless you're a higher end restaurant that is making millions of dollars a year. I mean, restaurants only have about a five to 10 percent profit margin, and that's if they don't break dishes, destroy, you know, equipment or something like that. So but thank you, Tom, for all that you do. I listen to you every single day. You're wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for your kind words. It's great to hear from you. I appreciate it. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. book club today we're reading from edward nell's book progress and poverty in economics the subtitle henry george and how growth in real estate contributes to inequality and financial instability this is from the introduction which is subheaded reviving the work of america's most original economist andrew mazone and i collaborated on a project to review the work of the 19th century american economist henry george especially his landmark book, Progress and Poverty, 1879, to see how George's work stood up in the light of modern economics and to determine what could be brought up to date and applied to the contemporary world. We wanted to establish that George's work was relevant and also to criticize American academic economists for having overlooked or rejected George, both in his own time, when his work was a worldwide sensation, and afterward, even today. Andrew died suddenly in the middle of the project. This book is a tribute to him and completes what we began. George began his career as an author and public personality with progress and poverty, arguing that progress brought poverty in its wake and that poverty might even outpace progress, an important original point of view that has not lost any of its relevance since George's time. In fact, in our age of burgeoning inequality, it may be more relevant today than ever before. The grounds for this paradoxical interlinking of progress and poverty lay in the effect of rising rents. For George, rents were payment, not for the use of land in the usual sense, but for pure access to specific places and locations. But why should some people have the right to limit others' access to the use of the earth? Surely it belongs to us all. Worse, the limiting of access by demanding payment would undermine the benefits of innovation and hard work. To prevent this linking of progress and poverty, George said a major policy shift in taxation was required. This is well known among economists as the Georgist single tax on rents, or the Henry George theorem. Since George's time, there has been progress, both in the economy itself and in economic analysis. The economy has been growing and growth models have become highly sophisticated, in many cases focusing on matters that were central to George, 
a century earlier. But that progress has also led to poverty, obvious in the economy itself. Our mainstream economics is also poverty-ridden, stricken. Our analytical models do not explain the persistence of poverty very well, nor do they account for crises and crashes, let alone the recent stubborn growth of inequality. The mainstream theory of income distribution, marginal productivity, which assumes diminishing returns for all these factors of production and the markets will coordinate their adjustment. Distribution is hopelessly flawed. George rightly rejected an early version of it. And contemporary economic theory has almost completely lost sight of rents and real estate, even though real estate was center stage in the global financial crisis of 2008, a crisis directly resulting from speculation in the housing market. And in 2016, Donald Trump, a real estate developer whose rise to power is intimately linked to rents and real estate speculation, was elected president. I wrote up notes on theory while Andrew worked on rents, cost of government, land values, and GNP. I eventually put our notes together into two more or less finished articles to present at the annual conference of the Eastern Economics Association in New York City. Economists have given George short shrift, which is a shameful oversight. He has much to teach us. He was uniquely American, perhaps our greatest economist, certainly our most original. He is justly famous and heralded in the 19th century, and his book Progress and Poverty, which is the source for much of our analysis on these pages, was the best-selling book on economics of that entire century. The book Progress and Poverty in Economics by Edward Nell. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 